Father in heaven, thank you so much for uh, this day. This day that you have given to us to uh, explore your word together, to uh, prepare our hearts for um, what you have for us in this life on earth. You are uh, such a good shepherd. Uh, You don't uh, invoke chaos into our lives, but uh, you lead us calmly. Um, And you warn us. Uh, You warn us of things when uh, we need to be warned uh, and not before. And so I thank you for passages like this and uh, their gentle grace um, as we consider uh, sufferings and, and persecution that we might face as believers and uh, the way in which you uh, you lovingly guide us through um, something that would otherwise uh, just cause a lot of fear and panic. Uh, so thank you for your love for your children. Thank you for um, your word. And I just pray that you would guide us by your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. So our last few weeks in First Peter have been uh, very much a deep dive on how God's people are supposed to approach life in this world. Specifically in response to uh, the authorities that God has placed over us. Um, and so we saw uh, how that uh, relates in terms of government. Uh, we saw how that works in relationship to uh, possibly bosses. Uh, we saw how that works in the marriage relationship as well. And um, today we are going to actually begin to explore a theme, uh, kind of a, a theme that uh, has been alluded to, and Peter kind of routes back to time and time again within this book, uh, but it's going to be kind of the central theme that he carries out through the rest of First Peter. And that theme is, how should God's people view and respond to unjust suffering and persecution that they may face? After speaking of coming persecution in the days ahead, Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 10, 24 through 25, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Point being, a follower shouldn't expect to face less than the one whom they follow. So for followers of Jesus, we know he was wrongfully arrested. We know that he was beaten. We know that he was nailed to a cross. This is the fate of one who is described in Acts 10, 37-38 as being uh, this way. It says, You yourselves know what happened through, throughout Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, that's not a bad resume, right? I mean, think about that. Think about Jesus. I mean, when you get away from the whole I am the way, the truth, and the life thing, people really don't have a problem with Jesus, right? He's generally described as good. 
And yet his fate was one of unjust suffering and persecution, which became the fate of his disciples as well. A fate shared by countless Christians throughout the ages to this very age as well. A faith scripture continually warns will increase all the more for his followers in the last days. So what do we do with the possibility of unjust suffering and persecution becoming our reality? What do we do with that? Who in here wants to face unjust suffering or persecution? Quick show of hands. Anyone? Cool. Looks like we're all on the same page. So what do we do with the possibility of it? Do we push the thought out of our minds and try not to think about it? Do we center our lives around the quest to try to avoid it? Or are we as believers called to something else in relationship to unjust suffering and persecution? That's what Peter begins to wrestle through in our text for today. Let's read verses 13 and 14a. I don't really think it's 14a. I just want to read part of it. So I called it 14a. I hope you're okay with that. I don't know if that's adding to script. Chris, can you confirm? I'm good. Okay, cool. Well, let's call it 14a then. That's good. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, dot, dot, dot. That's where the A comes in. So here we see two things. One, as a general rule, those who do good to others experience less suffering and persecution. But we also see that avoiding suffering is not a guarantee for those who walk in righteousness. So through means of a rhetorical question, boy, this is so weird. I don't, I don't like this at all. I like pacing a whole lot better. This is, this is painful. I'm sorry, guys. We're going to get through it together. <laughs> um, through means of a rhetorical question, Peter points to something that is generally true regarding life in this world, meaning similar to what we read in the Proverbs, right? Um, this is a, uh, this is a general truth. So, uh, basically he is saying, uh, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for being good? If you are basically a a person who really wants to do good to other people, no one's generally going to have a problem with you, right? Now, that's not true 100% of the time, right? But it is generally true. If you are a bridge builder instead of a bridge destroyer, or if you are somebody who is uh, continually trying to uh, meet the needs of those who are less fortunate instead of take advantage of them, if you are somebody who uh, walks old ladies across the street instead of pushing them into the middle of the street, um, then chances are your life is going to be filled with less suffering and persecution. And yet Peter knows that as believers, the potential for suffering and persecution for righteousness sake, it still exists. Which again was true for Jesus, true for his disciples, and true for Christians throughout the ages, as well as today. And yet, he isn't saying that it is a given here, is he? 
As we read the text, he's not saying that uh, in order for you to be a Christian, you have to face persecution. Uh, he isn't saying that it's impossible for you to live your entire life for Christ without facing any kind of persecution. He is simply preparing his readers for the possibility of it. That's probably a pretty good thing considering the fact that uh, Nero is uh, not quite at the height of his rule and reign in Rome. And uh, if Peter is the good shepherd uh, over his people that we believe him to be, he's probably looking at the state of things saying, you know what, we probably need to prepare for things to get a little dicey, Right? And so he's looking at uh, his people who he's writing to saying, hey, just be aware. This is a possibility. You should know that. If suffering and persecution are like the boogeyman of fictitious fear with no basis in reality, Peter would just instruct them not to think about it, right? Just take a glass of water and go back to bed. But if it's like a bear lurking in the woods... It would probably be good to know what to do if you should happen upon it. And that is what Peter is doing here for his readers. Peter does this by giving three purposes for potential persecution that both give encouragement and context to our persecution. These three purposes flow out of one difficult yet beautiful truth that we see in verse 17. Read that with me. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So here we see that the suffering that we face for righteousness' sake is ordained by God for a glorious purpose. That's tough. That's hard. When you think of the fate of the disciples, when you think of Christian martyrs through the ages, when you think of uh, Christians in recent times who have suffered great loss and even the loss of their own lives, we could spend a lifetime diving into the question, why does God allow His saints, or anyone for that matter, to suffer? And I don't want to... I don't want to breeze by it. I just think it's better covered elsewhere. Um, And so I do want to quickly say, though, um, that when we consider these things through the lens of God's will and we want to have our our knee-jerk reaction be, you know, why, God? Why would you allow this? Why allow the pain? Why allow the suffering, the death, the destruction? Why not... Rescue your children from the sting of unjust suffering and persecution. Why not just make all of that go away? The fact is that in some instances he does. Right? He does do that in some instances. And when that happens, we rejoice. And in other instances, um, he calls us to endure. And in every instance... When he doesn't deliver us, we rest in the fact that one day he will. Fully and completely. Right? That's our hope. That's our hope. 
that our circumstances in this life, regardless of what we face, regardless of them uh, being difficult or, or one of ease, that soon will come the day when our every pain, our every sorrow, our every bit of suffering that we face will find its end in Jesus. Peter turns our eyes to the one of the ways that God purposefully uses persecution in our lives in verse 14. It says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And so here we see that God purposefully uses persecution as an opportunity to eternally bless His children. I'm going to be the first to admit, it's not my idea of blessing. It's just not, right? I mean, when we think about uh, what persecution and unjust suffering is, that's not really a kind of blessing that I want. There's got to be a, an easier way to get a blessing. Um, and yet we see this theme continually throughout Scripture. We saw it back in First uh, Peter 1, verses 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Again, in 1 Peter 4, 12-14, Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And we see this same word for blessing used in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, where Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Point being, whether it is for the refinement of our faith resulting in praise from our Lord on the day of his return or to solidify the reality that we do indeed belong to Christ when we share in His sufferings, or simply to add to the stockpile of our eternal blessings, we can say that the suffering, the the persecution that we face is used to bless us as believers. Even if it doesn't equate to happy, healthy, wealthy circumstances here on earth. In the Moody Bible Commentary, Dr. Louis Barbieri explains, Blessed does not mean one feels delighted. It means to be highly privileged because one is the object of divine favor. So we know that persecution is a possibility and we know that there is blessing from God to be found in it. But how many of us would honestly say that you're willing to endure what is required to receive that blessing. I mean, are you? Again, 
Who in here wants to face persecution and unjust suffering? We don't. I think that's natural. I think that's okay. Right? Peter isn't asking us to, to be down with persecution. And it is much easier to just try and avoid it. Uh, to pursue temporary blessings, uh, the easy life, the good life, rather than the blessing of a righteous Christ-centered life. Blessing that while eternal, it may come at a great cost in this life. And so the question is, how does one get to a place where they are willing to endure persecution and pursue God's eternal blessing over the temporary treasures of this life? Because here Peter's very clear that the unjust suffering, the persecution that we face, that is, is a means to God blessing us as His people. But we don't want it. We certainly don't want to experience anything that's going to cause us harm. And so how do we get to that place where we're willing to trust God in the midst of the hardest circumstances that we could possibly face? Peter answers that very question in verse 14 and 15. So, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. So here we see that standing firm amidst persecution is only possible if Christ is first in our hearts. That is the only way that we stand. It's the only way that we will endure. Because if Christ is not first, we're going to cave. We're going to go for what's easy. We're going to go for what uh, blesses immediately versus what pleases our Heavenly Father and blesses us eternally. The last part of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15 is actually... A re-rendering of Isaiah 8, 12-13, which reads, Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. In its original context, the northern kingdom of Israel was about to be invaded by the unstoppable Assyrian army. And so they reached out to Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom of Judah, and they asked him to uh, unite and stand against the Assyrian army. But instead of heeding the words of the prophet Isaiah and standing with God's people in faith, instead of walking in righteousness by obeying God's command not to align with pagan nations, Ahaz, led by fear instead of by righteousness and faith, went and made a treaty with the Assyrian army. He joined the bad guys. Peter, no doubt, directs his readers to this moment in Israel's history to warn us away from the same shameful fate and disobedience of Ahaz and to instead give the whole of our hearts to the Lordship of Jesus willing to walk in righteousness regardless of the regardless of the cost 
So I guess my question is, have you given the whole of your heart to Jesus? I realize that we are, uh, that we're in a church that preaches the gospel just about every week. But the fact is that in the same way that uh, Peter could look at uh, the potential upheaval that was going to happen as a result of the, uh, the leadership uh, that surrounded the people of God in that day, I think we can look at our world and say, it's going to get real complicated to be a Christ follower, right? I mean, like, do you at all feel uncomfortable when you're scrolling through the news? You should. I mean, it, 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 it should. Not, not just as like a, a, a burden on your heart for what you're seeing, but, but also as you are seeing a world that is just about in every possible way opposed to Christ and His righteousness. The same Christ that we are called to be ambassadors of. The same righteousness that we're called to walk in. And so I think it's a good stopping point for us to consider is the whole of who we are rooted in Christ. Because to whatever extent we are trying to find our hope in something else, to whatever extent we are taking our heart and giving it to lesser things, that is the extent that we leave ourselves open to fall flat on our face in a time when we're called to stand. And when we give the whole of our hearts to Jesus... There's an opportunity for a second glorious purpose in our suffering and persecution that God can bring about. We find that in the second half of verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Here we see that God purposefully uses persecution as an opportunity for hope to be declared. Now, typically we take this verse out of context and we uh, use it to inspire believers to become evangelists and apologists. And yet, based on the context of this passage, the only reason why you are in a position to defend your faith, the only reason why anyone is asking about the clear and apparent hope that is in you is actually because... It's being displayed during circumstances where hope most often dies and fear resides. When you lose a job because you stood for righteousness in the face of godlessness. When you lose a relationship because you aren't willing to compromise on truth. When your security, your livelihood, or your life itself hangs in the balance 
because you are choosing to stand with Jesus and to walk in his righteousness. It's like a car wreck. Everyone's bottlenecking, right? They can't look away. Because they want to see how Mr. and Mrs. Christian are going to respond in, in the face of these trials. Because, man, they were all high and mighty until living for Jesus cost them something. And now how are they going to respond? Now how are they going to respond? But when we respond in faith in Christ instead of fear, when we respond in continued righteousness instead of compromise, when we are willing to suffer instead of wage war, we not only reflect reflect Christ, who suffered willingly for the sake of many, but our lives declare a hope that is foreign to a watching world. It's a hope that they can't help but ask about. And it's a hope that we offer to them in gentleness and respect. It doesn't make sense to stand in the midst of suffering. It doesn't make sense not to go and wage war. It doesn't make sense not to cause insurrection or to blow up at your office or to tell your workplace what you really like. All of those things make sense to the world around us. What Christ did, both leading up to and when he allowed man to nail him to a cross, that does not make sense. And we are called, we are called to be open to the same kind of suffering for righteousness sake. It doesn't mean that we will face it, right? He's not saying here that it's a guarantee, but he's not saying that it's not. Do we even have a category in our minds for the possibility of persecution, of suffering unjustly for righteousness' sake? I hope we do. I hope I do. And when we stand in the midst of that, how unique, how absolutely counter-cultural in a world that is just hot with chaos right now. I mean, again, go to your news feed. It is absolutely toxic in our world today. Just disagree with anybody about anything. I like blue shoes versus red shoes. What? Like, it's nuts out there right now. And so think about how absolutely countercultural it is for the people of God to stand and endure unjustly persecution for both their faith and their desire to stand for righteousness in a godless world. That would make some heads turn, wouldn't it? That would make some people stop and wonder, why don't you act like they act when they're wronged? What is so different about what's inside of you 
that when you go through something like this, you stand tall. Like again, you, you look back, I mean, you read through like Fox's book of martyrs. And you read through men and women who, who sang while the flames rose up. That's not insanity. That's a living hope. It's the same hope that was offered to us by our Savior who said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when we look at this, this gentleness and, and respect that we approach this hope that we are <clears throat> supposed to be prepared to make a defense for, we can respond to people in a loving way. We can respond to people in a way that reflects the gentleness of our Savior who called us in that way, right? He didn't call us out of our sin in anger and wrath, rubbing our nose in it, but instead, through His gentle grace, He pursued us in love and called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. And as His ambassadors, we're we're called to do the exact same thing. So that when we stand in the midst of difficulty and people ask, we are ready to give them the same gentleness, the same love with which Christ approached us. When we respond to our enemies and our observers, in this way, it provides a third opportunity for God to purposefully use our pain. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Here we see God purposefully uses persecution as an opportunity to silence the opposition. As we walk in righteousness and we suffer for the life we live in light of our Savior, our knee-jerk is usually to fight fire with fire. To put our persecutors to shame with every weapon at our disposal. And yet, here we find that our greatest way to silence our oppressors and to win brothers and sisters is to continue to reflect the righteousness of Christ in the way we live and respond amidst persecution. And when we do, we hand our enemies shame for their slander instead of fuel for their hatred. And in the same way, Our eternal hope is exposed as we endure persecution. The shame and wickedness of our oppressors is exposed as they bring suffering to the righteous. Isn't that funny? 
Because if you see somebody who is a good person, who is suffering at the hands of another person, again, it's, it makes sense for us to say, why are you bothering this person? They're not doing anything wrong. And here we are as God's people, walking in righteousness, being just like Christ was as He walked this earth. Lovers of man. Doing good. Preaching a message of reconciliation. Walking in truth. And when our enemies come at us and oppose us and slander us, The world is watching. And when we don't meet them where they're at, when we don't uh, respond in in a visceral way, that is a testimony. That is a testimony. And the watching world looks and says, wait, I don't think I can be on this person's side anymore who's persecuting. Like, they're kind of a jerk. Why are, you, why are you bothering these people over here? What did they do to you? And so we endure knowing that our endurance brings about silence to our opposition more than any other weapon at our disposal. Peter says it better than I ever could in a passage we covered a few weeks ago. 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 20. For what credit is it if When you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Okay, so now that we know that suffering and persecution is something that God uses for his purpose, once again, Anybody? Anybody want a little bit on just suffering, persecution? Philly team? Anyone? No? Okay. Well, I think that puts us on the same uh, wavelength as all of Peter's readers as well. We shouldn't want to face persecution. We shouldn't want to face unjust suffering. We shouldn't want to face the brokenness of this world in that way. Still, we must know that as believers, facing it is a very real possibility. It would be so unkind, so unloving of Peter as a shepherd to look at his people in the time that they were living in and to not bring this up. To not prepare their hearts and minds for the very real possibility that soon became an absolutely abysmal reality for believers in the first century. So we can ignore that reality and try and wish it away, or we can do whatever we can in our own strength to try and keep it away like Ahaz did. 
Or we can simply continue to walk forward in righteousness and faith. With our eyes on the One we know will only bring this kind of suffering our way if He plans to use it for purposes that are ultimately for our good and for His glory. We do exactly what the beginning of First Peter calls us to. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So maybe you're not currently facing persecution or suffering. But knowing that it is a possibility for believers, how do we prepare our minds for action? How do we stay sober-minded about that reality? I think it's on meditating on passages like this. I think it's understanding, hey, you know what, this could happen. But if it does, we know that it's God's will. We know that He's doing something. We know that He's using it to bless us. We know that if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we're going to stand. And we know that as we stand, we are going to be used by God as ambassadors for His living hope And we are ultimately going to bring shame to our enemies. We are going to silence our oppressors. But we need to, on this side of it, meditate upon those realities, meditate upon those possibilities, so that when we find ourselves in the midst of it, we're not taken aback. But we know that God's still on the throne, we know He's still moving. We know He's still doing exactly what He wants to do to bring about His good purposes. And we can trust Him. So again, I don't know if anyone in this room is going to face any kind of major persecution in the days ahead. I'm a betting man. I have guesses. But I don't know. But what I can say is that we benefit as believers to have a category in our minds for the possibility of persecution and to make it an intentional part of our prayers to say, God, if this is ever to happen, help me to keep my eyes on you. Help me to walk in righteousness. Help me to not lose sight of your promises. May our desire to avoid suffering and persecution in this life always pale in comparison to our desire for Christ and to live the life He's called us to, regardless of what it might cost. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. I thank You for Your goodness and that You don't You don't hide hard things from us, but You prepare us for them like a good father would. And I thank You that in Christ we have everything that we need to stand in the midst of difficult times. 
So Father, I just pray that our eyes would continually be on you, that we would continue to be men and women who walk in righteousness and who continue to trust you every step of the way. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.